Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. This series that we've been doing on the uh, love series has been going on now for many, many weeks. And, and I don't think we have ever looked at love so deeply and for so long in this church. And um, it's been such an incredible series. And having been part of it and exploring God's love to greater and greater depths, it's been challenging for me too. And I think, you know, don't let this be a one-off. Go back over the podcasts and, and listen to them again. And, you know, there's a nugget. there are nuggets every week and there'll be different things that speak to different people. But, you know, as a collective, this has been an incredible series. And I think... What I want to speak about today um, is something which has really challenged me and challenged me emotionally as well. We want to talk about the fact that um, God's love never gives up and love never fails. And I think that this is something you remember a few weeks ago, I spoke about the difference between what we store in our head and what we store in our heart. This is something we need to know in our heart. It needs to be in our core If you were to cut me down the middle, you'd see it written everywhere. God's love never fails. God never gives up. And I think that when we know that, we can survive any circumstance, any situation. Um, And we read this in Corinthians 7 and 8. It says, God's love, it says, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. We need to know that. We need to have that as part of our DNA, that God's love never fails. And it's really key. Um, So often I've heard people in life, and particularly through my line of work, of course, um, often say, why does God allow this to happen? Why did God allow that to happen? That wasn't fair. Why didn't God step in and change that situation? And so often it is because we want to have an understanding And we want to have an explanation that fits our understanding. And we very rarely want to accept something without understanding it. We want an explanation. And however, when we say things like, why didn't God do this or do that? Or why did God allow it or not allowing it? We're actually running up against a brick wall. We're asking the wrong question. And what we try to do then is we try to make scripture fit our explanation and our understanding. And we'll go to other people and get their opinions to see how we can make scripture fit. And we often manipulate scripture then to fit our understanding because we want to understand what's happening in our world. And most often we're going to come to the wrong conclusion because we can all make scripture say what we want it to say. We can all look at our situations and say, well, this, you know, this applies to this and this applies to that because we're trying to find understanding, but we're doing things the wrong way around. We have to put scripture first. And we have to have this scripture and other scriptures like this in our understanding so that we can say to God, God, I know you never fail. I know your love never gives up. Help me to understand that in the light of my circumstances. So we're doing it completely round the other way. And then God can 
Um, we're not blocking out God's mercy to show us understanding and to help us to use other scriptures to help us understand. The starting point has to be from the truth of God's word, not from our circumstances. Now, many of you know that over the last recent years, I've had more than my fair share of bereavements in my family. And just to name a few, my sister died age 48, my brother-in-law at 56, my brother at 66, my mother at 70, among others, all too soon. And I could have cried out and said, God, why did you not intervene? Why did you alter cancer? Why did you not stop that? Why is all this happening in my family? And I could have cried out to God in that way, but I would have just run up a brick wall against a brick wall. There's no answer. But in actual fact, what I did do was completely the other way around and said, God, I know you're a God of love. I know that all things work together for good for those who love God. I know you haven't left me. I know you haven't forsaken me. So God, help me to work out my circumstances in the light of your word. And in doing that, I was able then to receive God's comfort. I was able to say, God, I know you're the God of all comfort, so comfort me in my grief. I was able to say, God, I know you're not going to fail me. I know that I will survive this. I know that there will be a way through. And we have to, no matter how dark, no matter how painful our circumstances and our situations, you have to look at it from the light of Scripture and ask God to help us in our understanding um, of God's of what God is doing in our world because God will work all things together for good. And we have to believe that uh, when we're going through difficult times. I realised in all those situations that I was in danger of throwing away everything I based my life on for the sake of something I didn't understand. And we're in danger of that if we don't put and look at things in the light of Scripture. The last 40-odd years of my Christian life could have just been thrown aside because I was shouting out, God, why did you allow this to happen? And I was looking at things from the wrong perspective. Our understanding is so often flawed. And if we're not careful, we can convince ourselves from manipulating Scripture that we're actually doing the right thing. But in actual fact, we're not. We, God says that we can mistake the truth of God for a lie. And if we don't involve other people in helping us to understand things, we're in danger of doing that. And this morning, I want to try and show you, I think there isn't one person in this room who does not want to be loved We all want to be loved. It's in our DNA to be loved. And I know that I know that I know that I'm loved. I'm so grateful for that. I know I'm loved. I know my family loved me. And I know that God loves me. More importantly, I know that God loves me. And I was saying in the first service, we often talk about marriage um, from the platform and examples. And I've got no problem with that, except I'm single. And so... (laughs) I think we should champion singleness from time to time. And as I said in the service this morning, when I wake up in the morning, nobody says to me, darling, where did you leave my keys? (laughs) Or, ma'am, where's my football kit? You know, no one. I wake up in the morning and I say, God, it's just you and me again. It's just you and me. And I say, God, I love you and I worship you and I praise you. And I'm actually not going to get up for a bit now. (laughs) You know, there are some advantages to being single and I love it. I love it. 
And Paul says that, you know, we don't all have to get married. He says, if you do, you're going to have trouble. So <laughs> I opted out. I said, I don't want that kind of trouble in my life. I just want to wake up with you, God. Um, but I know I'm loved. I never doubt God's love for me. I've never doubted it. I'm so rooted in God that I know that God loves me. There's nothing I can do or say that will separate me from God's love. And to know that is so secure. And my identity is in that. My identity is not in whether people love me or not, or whether you fall in and out of love with things, as we do. My identity is found in my love, God's love for me, and I know it. And I'm very grateful that I've got a family who love me too. I want to try and explain to you this morning, if I can, that um, about the extent to which God has gone to show us his love. So that we will not be in any doubt that um, God loves us. And there's an incredible story in the Old Testament, which is a parallel. It's a, a, an incredible picture, if you like of how God loves us and the extent to which he has gone. And it's found in the book of Hosea. And Hosea is the story of a relationship between God and Israel. Um, but it's really very relevant to us today because it demonstrates the state of men's heart and the depth to which God will go to draw us, to draw us to himself and never, ever give up. And Hosea was a prophet. He was a contemporary of Isaiah, and he was very familiar um, with the state of Israel at that time. And the message that God gave to, to Hosea was to um, illustrate the state of the nation and confront the people with their unfaithfulness. In Hosea, it says this. And when God first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of the children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshipping other gods. And Hosea did exactly as God had commanded, and he married Gomer. And in the course of time, they had three children. And each of the children that were born, were the, the name that was given to them symbolised some aspect of Israel's relationship with God. And the name of the second child was Lo Ruhama, which means to have no pity. And God was using this to refer to what was coming. And what was coming was an invasion by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were notoriously cruel people who had no mercy and showed no pity. And that name Lo Ruhama is prophetic of where Israel's decisions to leave the shelter of God's protection had led them because they were about to reap the consequences of what they had sown. And what God was saying in this, in essence, was that if you want to go and put other things before God, if you want to go and worship idols, if you want to, let's, let's now prove and see whether they'll come up good for you when you need them to. And what we need to understand is that sometimes God does not intervene in our circumstances because consequences are so important. Yeah, if we don't reap the consequences of the choices that we make, 
we will never learn to change our consequences, um, our decision making. Sometimes the consequences of our decision making is really good, and so we say, right, I'm going to choose that again. But sometimes the consequences of our decision making is bad and has led us away, away from God or into a difficult situation where we're crying out, God, why did you allow this to happen when actually we allowed it to happen because of the choices that we made? Think about, for example, if you parents, if your children are constantly in debt because they can't manage their money and you just keep paying off their credit card, how are they ever going to learn to manage their money? We have to, and God allows us to to experience the consequences of our decision-making because he loves us and because he's trying to draw us to a different way of choosing. But when he allows that, he doesn't take his hand off us. He still keeps his hand on us. And so God was saying to them through this name of the second child was you're about to reap the consequences of your decision-making. And so therefore, let's test and see whether the idols that you have set up are going to come good for you. And of course they didn't because the Assyrians took them into captivity. And we also remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel where he, um, Elijah was up against 450 prophets of Baal. And Baal was a god of of fertility, a god of the seasons and the weather. And the prophets, um, the 450 prophets, were under the ownership of this God. Um, And Elijah said to them, you set up your sacrifice on this order, on this altar, and I will sacrifice, prepare my sacrifice on this altar. And you call on your God, and the God who answers by fire is God. And they set up their altar, and they put their sacrifice, and from morning till night, they called on Baal, and nothing happened. And so at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah came along and he threw water on it. Three times he soaked the sacrifice till he had a trench of water and then he called on God. And God answered and not only took up the sacrifice, he licked up all the water as well with fire. And they said, this is God, this is God. And so God will allow us to use the things that we lean on outside of him to see whether or not they are going to hold us up in life. In other words, the consequences of our choices. God will come quickly to a heart that calls to him. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro across the whole earth, the Bible tells us, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So when we call on God, he comes quickly to us as he did on the Mount Carmel. And so God's purpose for Hosea's marriage to Goma was to confront Israel with their sin of unfaithfulness. And it's very difficult to gauge how bad things were at that time spiritually. But um, in, in Hosea chapter 4, it outlines for us, um, and because this was part of Hosea's time and where he lived, he was fully aware of the sort of things that were going on. And it was Israel's spiritual condition was really poor. There was no faithfulness, it tells us. There was no kindness. There was no knowledge of God. The religious leaders were merely opportunists. They were greedily profiting from the sins of the people. Um, Their priests were corrupt. They were no longer teaching the truth of the knowledge of God. There was harlotry and drunkenness. The people were worshipping idols. And we know from 
um, 2 Kings 17, that they were also sacrificing humans. There was human sacrifice to God. So when you look at that and you see that that's what God was watching, it doesn't really paint much of a different picture to what we see today, does it? You know, we are still sacrificing people to all sorts of things. And many of those things, we may use different words today, but many of those things are, are happening in this, in, in this time, in our lifetime. So why am I highlighting this? Well, because many times in my life when I've spoken to people about God, they have said things to me like, well, God would never want me. I'm so bad. God would never want me. I'm not good enough. But actually, this is a real illustration here um, that God is desperately searching and desperately looking and longing for people to come to him. And although he can't look on sin, it does not stop him looking for us. And what we need to understand is that there's no secret sin. There is nothing that you have ever done or I have ever done, said or thought, that nobody else has done, said or thought. But we get trapped in that mindset, oh, nobody's as bad as me, or nobody's done what I've done. Well, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. There'll be plenty of people in the world who've said, thought, or done what you or I have done. And sin is common to man. We mustn't get locked into the fact that we're the only ones. We're not. But when God told Hosea to marry a prostitute, he also told him that she would be unfaithful to him. And somewhere after the third child, Gomer went off with other men and she ended up in slavery. But Hosea never stopped loving her. He never stopped loving her. He never stopped thinking about her. And he wanted her back. And so this is a story of how God's unfailing love draws us back from wherever we are, from whatever we've done, said or thought, and whoever we are. And he does this. So the first thing he does is this. He says to Hosea, he says, and this first verse just melts my heart. The Lord said, go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband. What was he saying? He's saying, Hosea, I see that you love her. Now go and get her. Go and get her and go and find her. And he says, she's in slavery, so you're going to have to buy her back. So he says, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. And this is such a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's love to us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We still love them. We still love them. No matter what they've done, no matter where they've gone, no matter who they worship, we still love them. We have to buy them back. We have to buy them back. How can we buy them back? Well, we've been redeemed and bought back by by the precious blood of Christ. And such was the love of God. And he's using this to illustrate his love. And God's love for mankind is set up in such a way that it's through a covenant relationship that God can't break. God cannot break his covenant of love with us. He is signed up to that. No matter what we do, no matter how much we break it, no matter how much we walk away, no matter what sin we get involved into, it will not stop God wanting to draw us back into that covenant relationship. And so Hosea goes looking for Goma and he finds her and he buys her back from slavery. And But then he realises that the relationship will not continue as it was unless she has a change of heart. Otherwise, she will want to continue to prostitute herself. And that's the same as us when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we have to have a change of heart. 
as Gary said, I realised, I realised, that's what a change of heart starts with. I realised, and, and it, Goma had to come to a point where she realised that she had to have a change of heart. We cannot continue, come to Christ and continue to prostitute ourselves to everything in life. We have to have that change of heart. It's that change of heart that says, now I want to turn and to follow Christ. And as an outward profession of that faith, I'll get baptised. And so it's when they have that change of heart. Now, Israel didn't have that change of heart until the time of King David. And so they reaped the consequences of their decision making and were taken into captivity. God will never forget us. God will never stop loving us. But we have to have a change of heart in order to facilitate that relationship with us. And he reminds us of this in Hosea 2.8 when he says, and she, that's Israel, doesn't realise, this is God, she didn't realise that it was I who, who gave her everything, the grain, the wine, the oil. I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave it all to the, all those gifts to the Baal. You know, what God is saying to us is that I've given you everything. I've provided everything. Even before you turn to me, I've given you everything. Everything you ever need is out there for you. I've provided everything. I've made every provision for you. And I look back over my life and I think even in those years when I wasn't following God, he was still making provision for me. God said they didn't realise that. And we didn't realise that either. We never realised that God's hand was on us and watching over us even before we turned to him, but it was. And he said, it's all out there. And even though you gave it all away and you, you, did, you, you used it in the wrong way, it doesn't matter. I can't stop loving you. I can't stop loving you because I'm in covenant relationship with you. And so God continued to provide um, for Israel. And then how does God facilitate that drawing back? And he says this, he says, therefore, I'm going to allure you and I'm going to lead her into the wilderness and, I, wilderness, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her back her vineyards and, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Now, Achor means trouble. So God says, I'm going to make the valley of trouble a door of hope. And he goes on then to say, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you'll no longer call me master. And I will remove the names of the Baals from her, her lips and no longer will their names be invoked. What is God saying here? How does God woo us, if you like, and draw us in? It says here, I'm going to allure her and I'm going to lead her into the wilderness so I can speak tenderly to her. What does God do? God draws us often when we're in the valley of trouble. God will draw us away into a wilderness. Now, it might be physical. It might be emotional. But he says, I'm doing that because I'm trying to speak to you. I want to speak to you tenderly. You know, God says, I'm not going to beat you up and whip you and crack you over the knuckles and say, I told you so. He says, I'm going to speak tenderly to you. But I need to draw you into a place where you can hear. Now, I've been drawn into wilderness on a number of occasions in my life. And I've come out completely different. Why? Because in that place, God spoke tenderly to me. Yeah. And what does that tender word from God do? It changes your heart. You know, we've experienced the presence of God this morning. And what does that do? Every time we experience the presence of God, it does something to us in our inner core, God's spirit with our spirit. And God is saying, and, and if you're in that valley of trouble now, 
God is saying, I'm going to make that your door of hope. It's in that place when you allow God to speak to you. Why does he need you in the wilderness? Because he needs all the other voices out the way. Not only the voices of sometimes your friends and family, but the voices of the things that you idolize and the things that you've put before God that speak to you. God says, I want to clear all that out of the way. One of my wilderness experiences when I was in my 20s, which was probably the best thing that God could have done to me because, or with me because I was so rebellious, even though I was a believer, I had had such a rebellious youth that God had to find a way of knocking that out of me. How could he do it? By speaking tenderly. How do you, speak, how do you change a rebellious person? You speak tenderly to them. And God put me in a place where um, it was so dry and it was so dusty. I was living in Africa that we even had to dig in the riverbed to get water because the water was dry. There was only one other person who spoke English and she didn't like me. And so I was... (laughs) It was tough. It was. I was totally isolated. And I can remember walking along this dried riverbed, crying, physically crying, God, help me, help me, take me out of this situation, I can't bear it. And it was definitely a valley of trouble. And God took me to that scripture, though he were obedient, uh, though he were the son of God, he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. I say, God, I'll obey, I'll obey. From now on, I will obey. Get me out of here. And within three weeks, I'd been moved. So what was that all about? That was the tender voice of God, speaking to my rebellious heart, causing me to submit to God. And sometimes God needs to. And that was a life-changing moment for me. I'm so glad it happened. She still didn't like me after that, but it was okay because I'd gone. But, you know, sometimes God brings us to defining points in our life where he wants to speak tenderly to us and we need to have ears to hear and it will change us and it will change the direction of our life. So God says, first of all, I'll entice you, then I'll speak tenderly to you and I'm going to make that valley of trouble a door of hope. Things are going to change now. In the times of our greatest distress can be the times of our greatest opportunities. And Romans 8 reminds us that there's nothing that we can do, nowhere we can go, that can separate us from the love of God. And we need to say what Paul said, I am convinced. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate me from God's love, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears, nor worries, nor powers of hell, no power in the sky, no power on the earth. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. That needs to be embedded in us like in a stick of rock, that no matter which way you cut it, you are convinced of God's love for us. God cannot, cannot, cannot break his covenant relationship. But the, what happens in our lives and the way we carry on, it grieves God. It grieves God. He can't look on sin and he longs and he yearns that we might have a change of heart, that we might turn. And one of the most heart-rending scriptures uh, where God cries out in verse 8 and he says, How can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you? He says, my heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. Can you imagine God's heart tearing for his people? 
it says, for God so loved the world. He doesn't just love the church. For God so loved the world. God's heart tears for people because he wants them to know this love that surpasses all understanding, that nothing can separate uh, him, his love from us. I've, I've known this scripture for many, many years, and in fact, it's been made into a song, which I often sing, because you remember songs, don't you, even if you don't remember words. But you know, how <clears throat> to hear God say, how can I possibly give you up? How can I possibly let you go? My heart is wrenched. My heart is torn within me. Um, and he can't do it. Just in closing, I want to ask you, has anybody, when I was preparing for this message, I came across something really interesting. Does anybody know what um, kintsugi is? Any Japanese people? Do you know what it is? Any Japanese people who know what kintsugi is? This is an incredible, incredible picture, I think, of the love of God. It is the Japanese art of repairing broken pottery. And what it's a very ancient art from about the 15th century. And what they do is, when they get pieces of broken pottery, they put it together with glue that is mixed with gold. And actually the pot, the broken pot that's fixed, is more valuable than it was before it was broken. And sometimes they just break pots to fix them and make them more valuable. Isn't that an incredible picture of God's love? And, it, and, and the reason they do that is because they don't want to hide the flaws. What they are doing is, it, is, is in, um, celebrating, if you like, or um, the flaws, celebrating the brokenness, that the brokenness can be fixed. And I, when I saw this, I just thought, what an amazing picture of the love of God, that, they'll take, that he'll take our life, that, yes, we might emphasise the fractures and the brokenness and the flaws, but actually he brings in the oil and the wine and he repairs it with gold. And he actually makes it more valuable than it was before. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what God does? And I've often tried to hide the flaws in my life and the mistakes and the errors, but I realise more and more as I get older that that's what's made me who I am. It's those flaws and those cracks and those broken moments in our life and those mistakes that have caused us to make different choices and to make different decisions. And every one of them, God says, I'll heal it, but I'll heal it with gold. I'll heal it with the blood of my son. I'll heal it with Christ. I'll heal it with a new life. And actually, it'll be more valuable to me, God says, than the life that you had before because it's submitted to me. God doesn't hide things. He inlays us with his life. We are precious in his sight and God is faithful. His love never fails. His love never gives up. Get that embedded in your heart and it will hold you in every situation. Amen. Amen.